This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And I just read a very long, very good article by Matthew Desmond, the Princeton professor in the New York Times Magazine. It's called Why Poverty Persists in America. Well, I say it was good. It was certainly thought-provoking, and mostly because, well, Desmond is subject area expertise. He's the winner of a Pulitzer Prize. He's an influential voice on poverty, on evictions, which his last book was about. But it's the writing, the quality of the writing, that does much of the work of convincing. And in fact, in the spiel, I will give over the spiel to thoughts influenced by the article, but not a picking apart of the article itself. And I'm not going to pick apart the article here in this top of the show, but I will just talk about some of the thoughts I had when reading it. So it is well-written. I'll give you an example of the prose. We don't just need deeper anti-poverty investments. We need different ones. Policies that refuse to partner with poverty. Policies that threaten its very survival. That is indeed a good call to arms. Desmond's thesis being that we're not doing enough. We're not naming the right victimizers in poverty. It's the exploitation of the poor, different from just government indifference that makes poverty persists, he says. And he quotes many other experts, sometimes as a counterpoint. He quotes two experts from the Brookings Institution who assert that access to certain consumer goods, like TVs, microwave ovens, and cell phones, show that, quote, the poor are not quite so poor after all, end quote. And Desmond writes, no, it doesn't. You can't eat a cell phone. Well, that's true, but... You can't use a meatloaf as a pocket-sized GPS. You can't make a phone call from a plate of spaghetti. But without my hilarious asides evoking meatloaf and cell phones, what about that? What about the idea that hunger is a huge issue? Well, I'm not going to minimize the issue, but since Desmond's thesis is that we haven't made any progress with poverty. No progress since the late 1960s, which is when he begins his survey. Let's talk about hunger and America, starting with the late 1960s. In 1967, Senator Joseph Clark of Pennsylvania and Robert Kennedy, serving New York, visited the Mississippi Delta. They, and this was possible at a time of pre-fractured media, directed all of our attention 
to what was going on there, what had been ignored, the horrible, horrible poverty, and yes, the hunger. CBS followed up with a seminal documentary in 1968. It was unsparing. This baby is dying of starvation. He was an American. Now he is dead. Here for CBS Reports is Charles Kuralt. And here now were the statistics from that documentary. Of the 30 million who are impoverished, 10 million Americans, whether or not they are reached by federal aid, are hungry. Well, in 2021, 89.8% of U.S. households were food secure throughout the year. 3.8%, or 5.1 million households, had very low food security. This would correlate to hunger. We've changed some of the terms. We've expanded, maybe loosened the definition of strictly hunger. Now we talk of food insecurity. But we did go from 10 million hungry when we were a nation of 200 million to, according to these statistics, 5 million households now. That's progress. But it's also millions of Americans in a state of deprivation requiring intervention and attention and help and outreach and sympathy. But the point is, or the point in this portion of the show, is that poverty, which is said not to have been improved, I think by very many measures has been improved. Maybe not the ones that Desmond is shining a light on, like that documentary in 1968 once shined or shone a light on, but in measures that really are real and a recurring theme of the gist is to please recognize the progress that has been made or else there'll be no incentive and no map to similar progress in the future. So on the show today, I will talk about that article and how we know what we know, the epistemological angle of why poverty persists in America in the New York Times Magazine. But first, Professor Judith Herman is a Harvard professor of psychiatry at their medical school. She is a important figure in the field of studying trauma and post-traumatic stress, and she is an extremely influential thinker who popularized the idea of what became known as recovered memories. She also believes in expanding the definition of PTSD to include multi-causal inciting incidents. This is known as complex PTSD. Her new book is Truth and Repair, and Judith Herman joins me next. Judith Herman is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of training at the Victims of Violence Program in the Department of Psychiatry at the Cambridge Health Alliance in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her work from 1997, Trauma and Recovery, the Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror, is a landmark text in the field. She is out with a new book called Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice. Dr. Herman, welcome to The Gist. Well, thank you very much for having me. The book starts with a discussion of tyranny. And of course, victims of domestic abuse will be victimized by tyranny. Survivors of incest will have been subject to tyranny. But how far do you take the idea of who is being tyrannized in a society such as ours? 
Well, I think wherever you have a kind of embedded relationship of dominance and subordination, uh, that's what I've been calling tyranny. So uh, uh, you, you see this, of course, in dictatorships, in political dictatorships, and um, you see it in many cults. And any time you have a ruler with absolute power or uh, close to absolute power, that's tyranny. Um, but it gets more complicated when you've got a democracy and yet you have uh, a legacy of uh, slavery or colonialism or uh, religious uh, or caste uh, domination of one group over another. So I think it's applicable wherever you see uh, this kind of embedded imbalance of power where one group dominates another. Would you say that that is just the background condition of the United States or more of something to be aware of that informs so much of what you've studied, which is the presence of trauma in uh, the lives of so many victims? Oh, I think it's very much part of our society, not just in the past, but in the present. Um, I mean, when every time you see kind of racial disparities, for example, in like police violence, for example, that's a legacy of, of slavery. That's a legacy of tyranny. You've written, I've been interested in some of your writing and thinking on PTSD, which you mentioned, and complex PTSD, which is if you could explain why you think there needs to be a distinction between the two. Well, the way I defined it um, was as part of a spectrum of traumatic disorders, um, uh, ranging from the impact of a single traumatic event like, say, an auto accident or a, a, a fire or a flood that's not, it's, it's, it's an accident or it's an act of God. It's not the result of uh, someone's malicious intention. Um, and that can be quite different from the impact of prolonged, repeated trauma that goes on over and over or over a period of months or years. Um, because when you have prolonged and repeated trauma, it means that a relationship of dominance and subordination, a relationship of captivity really, has been established where the victim is under the control of the perpetrator and is unable to escape. And when you have that kind of thing, and especially when it begins in childhood, you have a much more complicated clinical picture. You don't just have the classic features of post-traumatic stress disorder, which are the triad of intrusion, numbing, and hyperarousal. Intrusion meaning flashbacks and nightmares of you know feeling as though you're reliving the event. Numbing meaning feeling like you can't feel anything, and hyperarousal meaning being on, being on the alert 
for danger all the time, startling easily, not being able to sleep, that kind of thing. You see that even with a, with an auto accident. But when you've got that prolonged and repeated trauma, it starts to erode trust in human beings, trust in God, and it, uh, relationships, uh, and identity. One uh, most often the victims blame themselves. They are told it's their fault, and if they, you know, if they did whatever it is they did. Uh, wrong. If they didn't do that, they wouldn't get punished all the time. Uh, but no matter what they do, they get punished all the time. And so they just start thinking, I'm bad, I'm worthless. So it really affects people's personality and relationships very deeply. So that's why I call it complex PTSD, because it is more complicated. And it gets misdiagnosed so often. As what? What does it usually get diagnosed as? Oh, it gets diagnosed as uh, bipolar disorder, uh, personality disorder. Um, it gets uh, people get uh, uh, people have a lot of somatic symptoms, uh, and they. Uh, you know, the docs can't find anything physically wrong, and so they just get dismissed as crocs in the medical parlance. And, and, or people get put on a zillion medications without anybody ever asking about trauma. I think I might have had a misunderstanding that I thought that the difference between PTSD in the literature and what you're proposing was the triggering event. And I thought that classic PTSD had an event, seeing the World Trade Center crumble, crumble or being in a firefight in a war, as opposed to a soldier who could have been in Vietnam saw many firefights. So why wouldn't that be PTSD? Um, even under the classic definition, it might have been. It's not the number of events. It's the nature of the event that caused the original trauma that is uh, to your redefinition. The more um, combat people have been exposed to, the more, definitely the more severe and long-lasting the PTSD. But you don't necessarily see the kind of personality changes or development that you see when a person has been in a relationship of coercive control. Because when you're in that kind of relationship, there's no concept of trust, no concept of mutuality. It's um, You can be either a perpetrator, a victim, or a useless or complicit bystander. There's no sense of give and take. There's no sense of a relationship that's that's fair and mutual. And that really messes people up. Yeah. And the reason that you want to call this PTSD is that the effects are the same as what the DSM-5 now has as the PTSD, the, the numbing, for instance. Oh, the, yes. Those, yeah. Those... Now you see all those yeah. symptoms plus. Right. So you're just saying we need to expand our definition of what can cause the trauma, but the syndrome, the post-trauma 
the syndrome that's associated with the post-trauma is the same as the classic, you got in a car accident or you were in a firefight in a war. Right. Yeah. Okay. So if complex PTSD is about let us correctly name the problem, truth or repair the book is about what to do with the problem. And it is, as even the subtitle implies, very... um, victim-oriented and victim-driven, how trauma survivors, yeah, how trauma survivors envision justice. So what is, and you have a whole chapter on reparative justice, what are the ways that really work for trauma survivors that have shown great effect? I think what, if you actually listen to survivors and ask them what they want most and what is most healing for them, they'll say three things. Acknowledgement, apology, and amends. They want the truth out there. They want the community to recognize their truth and to vindicate them, to say, that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened, and it wasn't your fault, no matter what you were wearing, no matter if you ha- what you had to drink, um, no matter if you didn't have dinner on the table on time. That shouldn't. That was wrong, and it's not your fault. It's the perpetrator's fault, and the shame belongs to him, and not to you. So that's the thing that everybody wanted. And you know, if if they didn't even necessarily need a confession from the perpetrator, but they wanted the bystanders to recognize the what they had been through, and to say that was wrong. And the apology part was also often people wanted it more from the bystanders and the the collaborators, the the people who blamed them or, um, you know, chose to look the other way all those years. You see that a lot with the, uh, the sort of notorious serial predators that... Uh, when they finally go to trial and, you know, who were all the enablers and all the people who knew perfectly well what was going on. So, and the amends were much more about helping them with what they needed than punishing the abuser. They, They weren't very big on punishment. Uh, they also were not very big on forgiveness. What they wanted in terms of the fate of the abuser was they wanted him exposed and they wanted limits set on the abuser so he couldn't keep doing the same thing to other people. In instances where there is not, say, a criminal conviction, that gets complicated, though, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And and that's 99% of the instances. Right. What about when truth is contested? Yes. Um, well, that's where we really don't have a good fact-finding mechanism uh, for two reasons. One is that for the kinds of crimes I'm talking about, first of all, most victims don't report to the police, maybe reporting around 20% max uh, for things like sex- sexual assault. Um, because they know they're going to be discredited, they know they're going to be shamed, they're going to be interrogated as though they are the the criminals. And then the follow-up investigations are not done properly. You have all these police departments with rape kits gathering dust in a closet somewhere. 
so then the prosecutors aren't going to want to take the cases because they don't have good evidence. And if the victim still wants to go forward, it's first of all, it's not the victim's choice, it's the prosecutor's choice. But if the victim goes as far as testifying in court, it's going to be an adversarial system that is desi- perfectly designed to make uh, post-traumatic stress disorder worse. The last thing I want to ask you about is this issue of, and I want to use the phrase you use, you don't use recovered memory. What, what do you call the phenomenon? Or do you? Dissociative amnesia and delayed recall. You were one of the earliest, uh, if not proponents, uh, you helped get it into the public uh, consciousness. And then there's been there's been a lot of to and froing about that. And I recently, or within the last year, saw that uh, Ethan Waters uh, wrote a large article, and then you wrote a letter to the New York Times. And so, to summarize for my audience, you know, you believe that it is well. I'll let you summarize, but you believe it is pretty common, and you've done some studies of people who've been in therapy, women who've been in therapy, recovered some memories. And I think in something like, I don't have the stat in front of me, 39 out of 50 of the cases they were able to, 39 out of 53 cases that you studied, these repressed or recovered memories or disassociative amnesia turned out to be true because there was uh, corroborating evidence. And you've done more research into it than just that one study, right? Yes. And and there's been a lot more research by other researchers since both documenting the fact that amnesia is common after traumatic events, and that's true whether you're talking about combat or, you know, whatever. Memories that are created during the traumatic event are often created in an altered state of consciousness, and they're not stored or retrieved in the normal manner. But there is good scholarship that shows that often post-traumatic stress um, research concludes that traumas are remembered all too well, that, you know, hormones and neurotransmitters are released during traumatic events so that we actually remember them especially better than non-traumatic events. But differently. Differently. Yeah. The point is that uh, memory is affected in both directions. The, the memories that are laid down are, they're not narrative memories. They're sensory, you know, the smells, the sounds, the sights, um, the noise. They don't have context. They don't have, you know, people can't name the date or the, you know, the location, but they remember exactly what it smelled like, um, that sort of thing. So they're, they're, um, they're abnormal in that sense. And then fMRI studies of, um, neural pathways, you can actually see uh, with um, fMRI studies of dissociation um, where the links between the parts of the brain that are involved in memory storage and memory retrieval are, are cut off. So there's good documentation now about dissociative amnesia. Now, the delayed recall, first of all, with most people who have amnesia and delayed recall, the delayed recall will happen in the course of some event or life crisis that brings it back. 
certainly there have been, you know, the McMartin preschool case and cases where, especially with very young children, uh, there there were false supposed uh, recovered memories. I mean, it's Even not that that, case, that no. You think McMartin? I I don't know that case well enough to to um, really give you chapter and verse, but. Um, there's a professor at Brown named Ross Chait, who's written a book about um, the witch hunt narrative. That's sort of a re- review of those cases, looking at the evidence and saying, mm, you know, it's not as clear cut as I it- get. The, I'm, this is all leading up to. I'm not. I'm not by nature uh, a split the baby type, but in this case, why don't the best researchers coalesce around the idea that while this form of amnesia uh, exists, there are, like all other phenomena, false positives? It seems like those are two sides and no one has uh, really said, yeah, I mean, sometimes it happens, but that doesn't, sometimes there's a false positive and sometimes it's a high profile one. It doesn't mean that the underlying phenomenon doesn't exist. Uh, I suppose there's, you know, such a thing. You know, if you get a very hypnotizable subject, for example, and you deliberately try to inculcate a a false idea, you probably can do it. In the time you've been doing this, have you gotten more optimistic? Are we doing better in terms of understanding trauma, understanding victims, and delivering justice? Understanding trauma, yes, for sure. There has been, you know, there's there's a lot of interesting research being done in the trauma field. As a society delivering justice, I guess it's mixed reviews, you know? Um, it's often two steps forward, one step back, you know, but, um, certainly over the course of my lifetime, yeah, there's, there's much more awareness. There's much more in terms of resources and supports for survivors than there were back in the day. Um, I mean, but that's starting from zero. (laughs) So... So, yeah, I think we still have a long way to go. Judith L. Herman, MD, is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies and is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Her new book is Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel, strap in, big thoughts today. So you heard me talking about the Matthew Desmond New York Times Magazine article on the persistence of poverty. I will lay out his thesis. This comes, I think, in the second paragraph. On the problem of poverty, though, there has been no real improvement, just a long stasis. Quotes, statistics, 12.6% of the U.S. population was poor in 1970. It was 13.5% in 1990. And in 2019, it was 10.5%, a slightly varying persistent line. 
Now this, to put it plainly, contradicts a lot of what I know, or at least a lot of what I was led to believe to be true, and I was led to believe it by the New York Times. Jason DeParl, a two-time Pulitzer finalist, was on this show to talk about his front page story that was so remarkable, I thought it deserved much more attention than it was getting. Back in October, here's how DePaul described the thesis of his piece about cutting childhood poverty. You don't want to leave your readers with the impression that things are always getting worse. Um, in the official data, there had been some hints that child poverty was getting better. Um, we got access to improved data um, that took into account the full effect of government aid um, that the official poverty measure doesn't provide. And when you look at it through that lens, it's, it's kind of like putting on a new pair of glasses. You see that things really have gotten better for low-income children over the past generation. It was a story of enormous progress, heartening progress that bore telling. To understand what was happening, DePar went out, talked to people in West Virginia whose lives were improved, talked with researchers who looked at the numbers in better and more rigorous ways than before, and talked to people who knew to draw upon the relevant statistics. So the government spends hundreds of billions a year trying to make life better for low-income families, but yet when it counts poverty, it leaves that out. So starting in 2009, it began publishing something called the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which does take that aid into account. Now Desmond just rejects that. He contradicts it. So having theorized about this, he says, unchanging percentage of immiserated Americans, he asks, quote, what accounts for this lack of progress? It cannot be chalked up to how the poor are counted. Different measures spit out the same embarrassing results. Well, actually, no, they don't. Well, actually, actually, if you parse the words he's saying, he's not lying. Different measures spit out the same results, but that's different from what he seems to be implying that no matter which measure you use, it's all the same story. In a subsequent Twitter post, Desmond describes this. He acknowledges it in his writing, quote, There is no single way to measure poverty in a country of 300 million people. There are dozens of ways, each with their own limitations, and different scholars have championed different approaches. He goes on, Some have asked why I didn't rely on something called the Anchored Supplemental Poverty Measure. The reason is quite simple because I've become convinced that in recent decades, this measure has become divorced from reality. So he rejects what I believe, what a lot of experts believe is the best measure because it doesn't give him the results that he believes in. And he backs this up with a few more tweets. The best way to assess a poverty measure is to ask if it tracks with other hardship indicators. If the measure shows poverty trending down, then we should also see things like evictions, food insecurity, and debt trending down. But the anchored SPM, that's the supplemental poverty measure he derided, doesn't show that. In fact, over the past decades, it has fallen when just about every other measure associated with poverty has risen. This should give us pause. Talks about the SPM child poverty measure supposedly falling, but the number of homeless public school children soars and food pantry use has soared and non-mortgage debt is up 200% since 1989, but anchored poverty is supposedly down 50%. So on that third point, the debt point, how could it be up if poverty is supposedly down? Economists and economics writers lambasted Desmond. Debt isn't a measure of impoverishment. If anything, it's a measure of wealth. Creditors extend credit and therefore debt to those who they determine are good risks to pay it back. 
Economics writers who I really respect, like Noah Smith or Matt Iglesias and former Obama administration Jason Furman, are simply at odds with Desmond's writing. Furman wrote, quote, I was appalled to see a leading scholar of poverty repeat the misleading claim that the poverty rate has not improved in the last 50 years. He goes on, I'll spare you the whole tweet thread. Desmond's idea that poverty has not improved and deparles that poverty or the rates of poverty have gotten better, and it's a story of progress, are ideas that are incompatible with each other. And what's strange, or not strange, this is what I'm leading up to, is that they're incompatible within the same ecosystem. Maybe these articles were overseen by the same New York Times editors. A box on the web page that has Desmond's story says, here's some more articles about poverty, and DeParle's is the first article they point to. There's a little bit of journalism involved here, like uh, the magazine, New York Times Magazine, New York Times Paper, our different editorial departments, plus the New York Times Magazine piece by Desmond is taken from a forthcoming book called Poverty by America, which is a different set of editors still, probably explains some of the discrepancy. But still, how are we the readers of the New York Times? Readers that the New York Times genuinely wants to inform, how are we to make sense of this? These aren't reports on new theories about the nutrition value of lettuce or if a glass of red wine is good or bad. This isn't a debate about whether to withdraw troops from Somalia or not. These are clashing and totally disparate narratives, different narratives. That is the characteristic of just about everything we experience. Yuval Harari, a leading thinker, a genius really, on narrative being the thing that makes humans humans, that we can tell stories to each other and importantly to ourselves. I mean, it's not shocking. We went from roughly 40 regular narratives pumped into the home, you know, three networks, three hours of primetime television, four on Sundays. Some were sitcoms, some were dramas, some were non-narrative. So we had a manageable number. I don't know what the Dunbar number for narratives is, but we're probably under that. These days, John Landgraf, the FX executive who does the annual count, says that there were 599 original series in production. That was 2022. That does not count all the ones available on all your streamers that have ever been done ever and all the movies. And I don't know if you listen to narratives on podcasts. We are drowning in narratives. We recognize when this happens to other people, but the narratives we choose aren't narratives we choose. They're reality. So when Dick Cheney derided the reality-based community, we knew which side we were on that side. The one that said climate change was real and the war in Iraq wasn't going well. Now we know we're on the side of the election wasn't stolen. That is simply a false narrative that other people have adhered to. But the splits aren't always that huge and that stark, and they're not always between societies. It's not always the Russians arguing that they were the aggrieved, but the West knowing that they were the aggressors. Knowing, but also creating a narrative from that knowledge. And then maybe sometimes bits of that knowledge, I'm looking at you, Nord Stream Pipeline, become part of the narrative, but not actually part of knowing in that you can't know things that aren't true. Republicans and Democrats, those are dueling narratives. We get that. But think about this Desmond story. Most everyone caring about it at all will be left-leaning, just going by the demographics of New York Times readers and Matthew Desmond readers and people who buy books like Poverty by America. But Within the left, you now have different narratives to choose from. I cited Noah Smith and Jason Furman. I could throw in Tyler Cowen. A bit to the left of them is Brad DeJong. But those who I cite, those experts I trust, 
They also certainly cement my narrative. They helped build it. They inform me. And now I kind of go back to them to spackle the house they built. Sayez and Piketty, those are two economists who support Desmond's narrative. I can't say any of these people are wrong. I can't say Desmond is wrong. The debt chart, that's that. Nah, that was really uncompelling, let's say, to be charitable. But look at what he says about evictions. Look about what he says about food pantries. That stuff's real. The stats are real. And this article, this Times Magazine article, is definitely going to cement itself as the truth among many progressives. I can't call that wrong or a lie. I just prefer a different point of view. I think progress on poverty has been made, but I also want to think progress has been made. When it comes to ideas very far from our own, we maybe can say, if we're being generous, well, listen, I believe you and you want to believe your thing. And so let's coexist. Uh, Just don't pass the ivermectin. But when it comes to views that are pretty close to our own, I mean, I wonder how any institution like the New York Times, which is generally trying to serve a similar readership group, or how any belief system like, here's a pretty big umbrella, but progressivism, how it could choose its beliefs or steer its believers to the right path based on evidentiary standards alone. America has done much to ameliorate poverty versus America has done almost nothing to ameliorate poverty. It really is just which narrative you want to adhere to. What's the alternative not to accepting that? Trying to stamp the wrong narrative out? Trying to define one as wrong? How are we going to do that? Well, one way that's become popular, there is a there is a trend towards this, an urgency towards this, is to define things far outside of your narrative and things that are potentially harmful as disinformation. Now, when it's bamboo shoots and Dominion voting systems, that is disinformation. But what about the Great Barrington Declaration? Early on in the pandemic, they did say lockdowns were onerous. Yeah, they were. That was true. But they also said herd immunity is going to kick in. That wasn't true. Was that disinformation? Did that warrant censorship, even by a private company like Twitter? In a related issue, last week, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, journalists who published the Twitter files, were before Congress being assailed for spreading disinformation. But I actually don't think they spread disinformation. I do, however, fault their methods. You heard me talking about that. But there was Representative Dan Goldman, a bona fide hero of the first Trump impeachment, and he asked Schellenberger this question. You said in your Twitter files, am I correct, that every single fact in the New York Post story was accurate? Yes. Okay. Um, do you do you recall that the first paragraph of that Post story said that then-Vice President Joe Biden pressured Ukraine to fire its prosecutor general because he was investigating Burisma where Hunter Biden was on the board? The answer is no. Goldman just gave us a misquote. The New York Post didn't say Biden fired the prosecutor because he was on Burisma's board. He fired the prosecutor who was on Burisma's board. Might seem like a picky difference, but it goes right to the definition of disinformation. I totally agree with Goldman's understanding of what happened. The prosecutor was legitimately fired. He needed to be fired. He wasn't motivated by trying to enrich the Bidens. I reject the implication 
of the New York Post story. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't even an implication. Maybe just the reference. That's more on me. But the point is, the New York Post story really didn't get facts wrong. The narrative is it did. That narrative justifies labeling what they were doing as disinformation. I'm coming to believe more and more that's dangerous. Yeah, I definitely agree that there are some thoughts that, if put out there, can have an extremely corrosive effect on you, me, the body politic. And sometimes, in rare occasions, something needs to be done about these thoughts, these ideas. But what will inevitably happen if we have this label and tool called disinformation is that the tool be used, the label will be affixed, not to what's factually provable as a lie, but to simply what is the unpreferred narrative. And just as there is a left-right fracturing, there will inevitably be a neoliberal versus progressive fracturing. And then within the progressive caucus or the progressive side of things, a class conscious versus social social justice fracturing, and it'll all be about power and it will all be about narrative. That's all that human understanding is. Yuval Harari says that's all human existence is. And I guess going back, as Harari does to the very beginning, it was all inevitable. It's as old as civilization. It's why so many of the names for indigenous peoples or groups translates to the real people or the true people. Thousands of years of evolution, thousands of years of technology, thousands of years of interaction later, we're back at the start. We all have our own stories, our own myths, our own people, our own next source of fracture. And therefore, in conclusion, I say thank you for listening to this podcast, which could very well be, you know what, let me go even further, which is almost certainly wrong. Now go forth and seek out contradiction and choose a different narrative which I hope will be able to exist in your brain long enough with my narrative before they're both eventually destroyed and overtaken for something new. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST's producer, and Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pasca is vice president for philanthropic efforts at Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening.